so now we're going to read uh, from God's Word. Uh, we're going to read uh, the fourth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. You can find it on page 664 of your church Bibles, page 664. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingship kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Good morning, everyone. Um, happy Father's Day to the dads. Um, I, I just want to say a quick word of encouragement to the dads. Um, we did an activity this week in our men's behaviour change group and the activity was that we talked about core beliefs that are at the foundation of our house and um, this wasn't one of them that came up but I think this is a core belief that many men including particularly actually I should say the men in my group function on and that is my role as a dad's not really all that important mum's role is much more important than mine I think that's a core belief that many men in Australia have and I want to say I think that's wrong 
Um, your role as a father is just as important as the mum's role. And so, men, get out there and be good dads and enjoy the role of being a father on Father's Day. My, my um, group is full of men who are confused about their role as dads and whose children, therefore, are suffering as a result. Um, it's really important that we do that job well and that we not be confused about it. Well, that's not Ecclesiastes, but let me, let me start to talk about Ecclesiastes. How about we pray before we um, do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teacher and for his wisdom. Uh, we uh, pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have us see this morning as we look at the subject of wealth and success and fortune. And we pray that you would help us to approach these subjects with a godly mind and with open hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the big news items last year was the Banking Royal Commission. It's still a bit of a news item now, isn't it? But um, for years here in Australia, we've been told that we have some of the best banks in the world. And during the global financial crisis, when banks around the world were going under and ours were doing well, we kind of believed that, didn't we? But uh, last year, we found out why they were doing so well. They were charging us for services that we never received, and they were even charging dead people for services that they'd never received. And of course, we're all up in arms about that because we're quite committed to our money, aren't we? And we want our hard-earned cash to go into banks that are going to look after it and are going to give us good interest uh, because we think money is important and that it gives us significance and meaning in life. And certainly the teacher noticed that in his quest uh, for meaning uh, throughout uh, the world, that uh, money was one of the things that makes the world go round, as someone wrote in a song. And uh, chapters 4 to 6 of Ecclesiastes are given over to this topic of money and of fame and fortune. So let's have a look at what they say. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I looked. Uh, he's always looking. He's always noting, but he notes lots of things that we don't see, doesn't he? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, the thing that strikes you in, in those verses, uh, first of all, is the contrast. The teacher notices the tears of the oppressed. He notices those sitting in the dust heap of despair. They've got nowhere to live, they've got nothing to eat, and they've got no one to comfort them. And his assessment is it would be better that they hadn't been born than that they were born into this life of oppression and sadness such as they are living. Now, it's a very depressing assessment, isn't it? Uh, but it's hard to disagree with it. 
I mean, it would be a foolish person who suggested that those millions of people who are starving uh, or who are being uh, used by others are happy that they're alive. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But it's certainly a reasonable assessment, isn't it, that, that the teacher makes. It might make us feel uncomfortable, but it's hard to disagree with. But then he also notices those whose great desire is to get ahead. They're not sitting in the dust heap of despair. They're climbing the ladder to success. They're on their way to fame and fortune. But the teacher, being the perceptive person he is, doesn't just take note of what they're doing. He he notes what's driving them to do it as well. And his answer there is seen in verse 4. I saw all the toil and all the achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Now that is a big call, isn't it? Uh, but we need to, to take it on board, I think. We call it keeping up with the Joneses, don't we? Next door gets a swimming pool, we want a swimming pool. They get a 65-inch TV, we want a 65-inch TV. They get a new car, we want a new car. The teacher looks around at all this activity, all this hard work and achievement, and he says it's all driven by man's envy of his neighbour. People aren't just working so that they can pay the mortgage and feed and clothe the kids and then have a little bit left for a nice holiday. No, they're working to feed their envy. They're working so that they aren't left behind and better still, so that they can take pride in all that they've got once they've made it to the top of the ladder. Because once you get to the top, you can look down at everybody else. Now, friends, I hope that it's not you and me that he's talking about. But it's worth asking the question, isn't it? It's worth taking a good, hard look at ourselves. Why do we buy the clothes we buy? Why do we drive the car that we drive and and live where we live and shop where we shop and relate to the people that we relate to? Why do we display the letters after our names and parade our titles? And if envy is any part of our motivation, then we need to take on board what the teacher says here. Because he is saying very clearly that our desire to get ahead, that our our desire to be successful is probably contributing in some way to the oppression in the world. And he's also saying that we have probably swallowed hook, line and sinker the meaninglessness and vanity of the world. In aiming at success... We are chasing after the wind. And he goes on throughout chapters 4 and 6 to show why life at the top isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And he gives us three reasons. Firstly, he says it doesn't last. The fame, the fortune that you might achieve in this world when you've made it won't last long. Chapter 5, verse 13. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands." Your achievements in this life, whatever fame you might achieve, whatever fortune you might amass to yourself, will not last. 
If you're lucky, you might remain famous and rich during this life, although even that's not a dead certainty, is it? And the same is true of money. The fact that you are rich today doesn't mean you will be tomorrow, but even if you manage to keep your fortune and fame during this life, you simply won't be able to keep it forever. And that's the point the teacher's making there in verse 15, isn't it? Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. See, Jeff Bezos may be the world's richest man, but on the day he dies, you will be richer than him. That's the fact, because he cannot take with him what he has. A friend told me about a conversation she was having with someone about a mutual acquaintance that had died. The person who had died was a very wealthy man. And this other lady asked my friend, how much did he leave behind? She answered, everything. That's how, that's how much we leave behind, isn't it? Everything, fame and fortune, simply don't last. Secondly, the teacher says, not only do they not last, they don't satisfy. Uh, chapter 5, verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? And then if you flick over to the next chapter, uh, you'll see chapter 6, verse 7. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. See, the teacher sees the desire to get ahead. He sees the desire to make it to the top of the ladder and he sees the envy which is driving that desire. Uh, It's a green-eyed monster. It has an insatiable appetite, never satisfied. The former Duchess of Windsor would often say one can never be too rich or too thin. Someone once asked one of the Rockefellers, America's richest family at the time, how much money does it take to make you happy? And his answer was, just a little bit more. See, the teacher is right. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And the third reason why the teacher says being at the top of the ladder is not all it's cracked up to be is because the price of getting there is way too high. Straight after all this talk of advancement and achievement in Ecclesiastes 4 come those verses about loneliness and relationship. Have a look at chapter 4 and uh, begin at verse 7. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone, he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, why do these verses come after the teacher has just told us that labour and achievement spring 
from our envy of our neighbours? Well, I think it's because he's trying to show us that often the cost of achievement and success is relationship, and it's a high cost. John Paul Getty, one of America's richest men, was an example of that. His family was never free from feuding. His sons never felt he loved them or had time for them. He never found happiness or success in marriage. And in the end, everybody who worked for him hated him. A biography of his life said it was the story of a wealth that afforded him no joy. Five marriages, five divorces, two terrible deaths, an unforgiving, unrelenting miserliness, a legend of luxury, lust and loneliness. What an epitaph. Uh, What a life. Had everything and yet he had nothing. Now, of course, that doesn't just happen in the lives of the rich and famous. It can happen in our lives as well, can't it? As we stretch uh, to make it to the top at work or as we slave to get our salary up into the next tax bracket to give more to the government, often the price of that is uh, family and enjoyment of life. Getting to the top can be very costly, way too costly, because it may mean that we end up being successful, rich, and lonely. And so life at the top isn't all it's cracked up to be. For a start, we work hard to achieve what won't last, what won't satisfy, and it may well cost us the very things that are worth having relationships, love, friendship. So what's the answer? How do we break out of this cycle that we uh, so easily find ourselves in? Well, the teacher says we need to do a couple of things. First of all, we need to uh, enjoy what we have and stop lusting after what we don't have. We need to learn to be content. And he keeps on emphasising this over and over again. Chapter five, 4, verses 5 and 6. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. So he says you're better off having less and being happy than having heaps and being miserable. And then if you look in chapter 5 and verse 18, he says the same thing. Uh, This is what I have observed. uh, Sorry, verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Now he keeps coming back to this again and again, doesn't he? This is a refrain that we've seen almost in every, every week that we've looked at Ecclesiastes. In the end, what we need to do is eat, drink, find pleasure in our work, take pleasure in our lot in the simple things of life, contentment in the good things God has given to us rather than enviously eyeing our neighbour out of the corner of our eyes, trying to keep up with them or even worse, trying to better them. Secondly, the writer says, in breaking out of this cycle, we need to stand in awe of God. 
you look in chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to, to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. Now, it seems interesting to me that these verses are stuck here right in the middle of this section about money and advancement and fame and fortune. And I think they're here because the teacher wants to remind us that life under the sun is not all there is. At times it appears that that's the case. At times we get so caught up in this world and everything that it has to offer that we forget that there's more that we forget to look up, as we saw uh, a week or two ago. And he's reminding us that this world is not all there is, and it's certainly not worth possessing it if in the process we lose our very soul. And Jesus reminded his disciples of that, didn't he? He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose your soul? That is the ultimate bad business decision. Susan was telling me she caught an Uber to the airport the other day and the lady driving said that she drove the Uber as her, her kind of sidekick job. Her main job was that she invested in the stock market at home, it was her, that, but that was her main job. And so she said to her how she'd gone and she said, I've lost everything. All, all that she had to invest, all her wealth, she'd lost it on the share market. Crazy. But you know what's even more crazy? to gain everything but to lose your soul in the process. See, if all of our equity is in this world, then we are fools. Now, if you want to get out of that endless cycle of climbing the ladder and getting nowhere, of acquiring endless possessions that won't satisfy, then we need to realise they're not worth having anyway because they don't last. This world doesn't last. But there is beyond this world, there is uh, 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 not under the sun but above it, a, a, a kingdom that, that will last. And that's why the writer says we need to, to set our eyes there. Uh, as the old hymn used to say, you, you, we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And it's then that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's the second thing the writer says we need to do if we want to get out of this cycle. But thirdly, he says we need to realise that godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 uh, reminds us of that, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And I suspect that Paul uh, may well have had this passage in Ecclesiastes in mind as he wrote those words. We brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing from the world. Money will not make us happy. What it will do is tempt us to turn away from God. And so Paul says ultimately what we have to do is turn all of our ambition and desire to get ahead towards a better goal towards the goal of godliness. And so Paul says in uh, verse 11 of 1 Timothy 6, but you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Uh, 
Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. See, this passage forces us to ask the question, what is it that we are pursuing? Where does our ambition lie? Does it lie in a new house, better car, more up-to-date computer, better qualifications, more uh, power and prestige and name for ourselves? Are they the things that our ambition is directed towards? Or are we pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness? Are they the things we're fighting for? To be at the top of the ladder before everyone else or the fight of faith? We need to remember the words of the teacher. Whoever has money never has enough. Very sobering words, aren't they? But godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, need to be honest this morning and confess that we are very easily taken in by the things that this world offers. We confess that our hearts often want them. Uh, We often chase after that prestige and that good name and that wealth. And it's been our experience that it doesn't usually satisfy. And so we pray that uh, through the reminder of these words of the teacher this morning, you might help us to turn our ambition to a better end, towards godliness and contentment. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.